Hey everyone, Alpha Tau here, A-L-P-H-A-T-A-V. Hope that you have been enjoying the podcast episodes that have been uploaded. Again, just a foray into biblical exploration, trying to help us learn a little bit more and get a little hungrier for the things of God, while also turning the prism into cultural things such as philosophy and postmodernism and all the things that revolve around that. And so, again, hope that you're enjoying it. This episode, I introduce to you one of the leading academic scholars in Pentecostalism, Dr. Jeremy Painter, good friend of mine. And uh, this recording that you're about to hear was done at a symposium. And uh, I was privileged to speak at that same symposium along with him. And uh, this is probably one of the greatest presentations I've ever heard on the church. And so let me introduce you to Dr. Jeremy Painter on A Church for Losers. I criticized Tertullian, Hippolytus, and others, men who were willing to divide both the body of Christ and God himself. Today, though, my aim is to speak of the triumphs of early Christianity, especially those of the first two centuries. I'm not going to list the litany of errors that crawled into the church. That work was done last year. I'm not going to discuss the divisions wrought thereby. My focus will not, I hope, drift towards the theological debates that the church internalized. Those debates were for the soul of Christianity. Instead, I want to focus on the church's fight for the survival of its mortal body. I want to zoom out from the closer view which I took last year, taking in its inter- internecine, rather, struggles and consider Christianity as a whole pitted against a Roman empire that fell into and ultimately lost its war on the church. My hope is that in becoming more familiar with this old war, you'll see clearly that our modern struggle against secularism, scientism, materialism is not a battle against a new enemy but an old familiar foe whose devices and goals have not changed a bit. I wish, therefore, to begin by approaching the subject of the early faith somewhat in counterintuitively. I'm going to report on the faith from the perspective of one of its early critics. The persona through which I will speak in this first section will be that of a roughly second century Roman observing Christianity in its dimmest, least sympathetic light possible. I want you to hear as if it were coming from the critic's own mouth, how early Christians were viewed by the public at large. At times, though, I will slip in an anachronism so that the critical persona also takes in a modern critique of the faith. Then for the balance of the discussion, I'll turn a critical gaze now upon ancient Rome itself and its 21st century scions. My theme for the presentation has an unusual source of inspiration. A widely publicized interview 
Ted Turner, billionaire husband of Jane Fonda, the owner of the Atlanta Braves, and TBN called Christianity a religion for losers. And this may be the only statement Turner's ever made with which I agree. And I'll use this forum to tell you why I think this may be the most fitting modern summary of the New Testament church's own self-understanding. The persona I've chosen is that of your average member of the Roman proletariat, call me Martius. I've observed the Christians far and wide, and I've studied the text they consider holy, and here is my report. Let's start at the top. The founder of the Christian faith was by all accounts a criminal, not a particularly dangerous criminal, but in the powder keg that is ancient Palestine, even a single match can have empire-wide repercussions. We know how to handle, as Romans, those who put peace at risk. Some 100 years before Jesus' crucifixion, a certain popular slave fell into the hands of our own Marcus Licinius Crassus, our triumvir lined 70 miles of the Appian Way with crosses, warning all would-be rebels just how dangerous sedition against Rome can be. We value Pax Romana, and on certain occasions we'll show just how serious we are about our peace by putting men like Jesus of Nazareth to the cross. Pontius Pilate, a sensible Roman it seems, understood that the peace of a region is more important than the innocence or guilt of one solitary man. If you take issue with our moral calculus, ask the mothers of sons lost in senseless wars whether or not the punishment of one questionable foreigner is worth one less war. But what of Jesus' mourners? Were they many? No. The slave gladiator Spartacus had 6,000 followers. He and they were hung on 6,000 crosses. But what of Jesus? How many of his followers were willing to die on Golgotha with him? He was crucified between two strangers, say the Gospels. The contingent of those who came in sympathy was so small that his mother represented 25% of the crowd. His maternal aunt represented another 25%, and 75% of the audience was named Mary. Even the noonday sun decided to be absent. The only male present was a rather dreamy devotee, the kind of young, misguided eccentric that always seems to follow around cult criminals like Barabbas, Charles Manson, Pablo Escobar, men these younger youngsters deem merely misunderstood. But surely the most startling absence on that day was the absence of God. All theological and Christological explanations aside, Christians should not so easily explain away Jesus' so-called cry of dereliction. Only a religion for losers would base its faith on a God who sounded, if only for a moment, as if he were an atheist. And yet Christianity did. Peter, how about Christianity's chief apostle. What kind of loser do we have here? One night he swears he'll 
always come to Jesus' defense, no matter the cost. The very next night, as a unit of soldiers come to arrest the minor irritant Jesus, Peter so ably defends his master that he takes a swing not at one of the arresting soldiers. No, no Scipius Africanus major we have here. He's so incompetent that he directs his attack at an unarmed slave. At close quarters, he aims for the head and misses, catching only his ear, and then he abandons the one to whom 24 hours earlier he swore an undying allegiance. Incredibly un-Roman. Is this the end of Peter's disgraceful night? No. In this comedy of errors, he has at least one more show of incompetence for us. Outside City Hall, while his master's standing, bound and shivering on this cold late winter, early spring twilight, powerful enemies all round, Peter is caught warming himself by a fire. Three figures accuse him of being one of Jesus' disciples. Are these powerful, dangerous interrogators? No, not in the least. The first accusation comes from a mere slave. And please note that the text of John draws particular attention to the fact that she's a slave girl. Not only a slave who would have no standing in the ancient world. Not only a woman, but a girl. Peter the saint, the great. Peter the shepherd. Peter the prince. Peter the rock. Here he is, disarmed, rendered utterly craven by a mere girl. To put Peter's cowardice in further perspective, while he's busy distancing himself from Jesus, Judas Iscariot heads back to Caiaphas' house where he will publicly at greatest risk confess his sins and innocence of Jesus. His contrition is so complete that to secure Jesus' freedom, he's even willing to part with his ill-gotten coins, the only thing it seems Judas ever loved. The difference between Peter and Judas, Peter, who in an eerie reverse image of Jesus hung himself on a tree. Only a religion for losers would choose a Peter to deliver its keynote inaugural address, and yet Christianity did. How about the Apostle Paul, the man most responsible for Christianity's intellectual underpinnings, and I put that in air quotes. This man has loser all written all over him. He's named after the tallest man in Israel. But if his nickname Paulos or Tiny is any any indication, he was unusually slight. The persona he projects in his letters is impressive, as if he were a thunderer, a giant towering over men. But when folks saw him in person, they realized they had been misled by a Wizard of Oz effect. Tall and mighty behind the screen, but feeble and unimpressive in person. They expected a mighty trumpet, but what they got instead was a kazoo. Let's review his pathetic profile. Exhibit A. When a slave enchantress followed Paul around in Dane to give free, credible advertising for his claims, what did he do? He turned on her and viciously deprived her owners of the money they had been making off of her. The local magistrate then decides to do the reasonable thing and give him a good beating. Now it's just like a man such as Paul to take no pride in his Roman citizenship. The eternal city of Rome was much too noble for a Philistine like Paul, a man who didn't possess the faculties to appreciate the belonging to so beneficent a people. 
So for me, there's delicious irony in the fact that he failed to mention that he was a Roman prior to being beaten. Love it. It is the, it's the next day that he bothers to inform the magistrate of his Roman citizenship. Is this stupidity? If he'd just mentioned it the day before, he'd have spared himself and Silas a severe but deserved beating. Exhibit B, he walks into Ephesus, the ancient hub of the eastern half of the empire, and has the cheek to lecture everyone on religion. Worse, he once again takes no care for the fragile local economy. He shows up and starts spouting off, and then predictably the local shops start losing revenue generated by their trademark icons of Artemis. Now, these shops have been operating in this way for hundreds of years, harming no one. But it's beyond Paul to have any sympathy for such refined traditions. But he did manage to start an Artemis revival. Leave it to Paul to walk into a city where Artemis was little more than a collection of harmless icons and to leave under the sound of 75,000 Ephesian citizens chanting in the Artemision Megale Artemis Ephesion. Megale Artemis Ephesion. Surely the most clownish moment in Paul's career comes early on in Luke's history of the apostles' journeys. What was Paul thinking? in telling the story of how he had to escape his assailants by being lowered from the Damascus city wall in a basket. Another pathetic story. As we all know, the highest honor a Roman soldier can be given is the Corona Morialis, the medal given to the soldier who is the first to risk his life and climb over an enemy city wall. It's almost as if Paul's life as a Christian is from the outset, a comical parody of the honorable Roman soldier. Anyone with sense would tell a story of how a brave man climbed the wall and stormed into the enemy city, but not Paul. Just look at him, cowardly, clownishly, crouched in a basket, dropping inch by inch from a rope, finally landing, but on the wrong side of the wall, running away from instead of bravely into trouble. We Romans are strong and proud. We picked the world up by the scruff of its neck and gave it progress whether it wanted it or not, but it's almost as if Paul gloried in what we Romans would be ashamed of. He wallowed in weakness. Just see 2 Corinthians chapters 12, 13. And if none of this is sufficient to persuade you of Paul's status as a loser, consider that his chief opponents came from the ranks of his own people fellow Jews and Christians. From his own pen, we learn that he was beaten within an inch of his life by his own people five times. He left no city without helping himself to a full treatment of its prison system. But his own, by his own admission, he was shipwrecked three times. No other man, not even one who spent his entire life upon the sea, could claim such a dubious honor as this, not even Odysseus. If you're shipwrecked once, it might be that the gods were angry with a fellow passenger and you just got caught up in the collateral damage. But if you're sunk three times, there can be no doubt. Hori Neptune is against you. 
No sooner would Paul leave a congregation than that congregation practically tripped over itself to find better preachers to rally around. While other more sensible men inspired their audiences with sermons filled with visions of the third heaven, Paul stubbornly insisted that the grandest vision of God anyone could ever see was of him hanging in bodily form from a cross. He shamelessly fetishized what everyone else had the sense to despise. Most audiences are suckers for grand visions of glory. Give them a strong God, a cunning God, a reasonable God, a wise God, a platonic God, a Roman God who wants to claim that a weak God capable of bleeding and dying was their maker. We want to know that we were descended from a God above all of that. And whatever you do, avoid offending the people's sensibilities by depicting a God who reminds them they're sinners. But no, Paul never had the gift common to great men, namely the gift of harnessing people's desire to be flattered. And the more his vision repulsed people and the more they begged for a higher, more satisfying vision of God, the more Paul foolishly, quote, determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified, unquote. It's as if it never occurred to him that life in this world was ugly enough. He had to make heaven ugly too and fill it with a bleeding God. At the climax of his insane grotesqueries, he fantasized that he was being, quote, crucified with Christ. I almost pity him. I won't even go into that episode at Troas when he literally bored a listener to death. Only a religion for losers would allow such a man's musings to fill the pages of its holy book. And yet Christianity did. Such a religion has no hope of ever competing in the the arena of religions for winners. Now, this critique, as droll as I'm sure it sounded, is an approximate view of early Christianity from the public at large. But at least the Christian church admitted that it was a religion of and for the rejected. It had such self-confidence in its Lord that it boldly recorded the flaws and weaknesses of its apostles. The Christians codified in its New Testament their very worst moments. But what about Rome? Let's take a look behind their facade and see what it wanted to hide. The religion of the Roman Empire, like the empire itself, was built to last forever. The city carefully studied the empires of the past and learned from their destruction. The empires of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece fell in part because they failed to respect the gods and customs of the people they conquered. On the contrary, everywhere Rome went and whatever nation it conquered, Rome left the local region in place and adapted itself to its environment. A religion of winners is adaptive and accommodating. Rome was sensitive to cultural sensibilities, but a Rome and its religion of winners came at great cost. Rome supposedly gave dignity to its sons and daughters. It taught them the value of civic and familial virtue by home and hearth. 
A religion for winners places examples of strength before its children. The gods are strong and beautiful and flawless. Fathers and mothers are the very picture of strength. The Roman Caesar as father to his nation and God to his kingdom mirrors both. But in truth, no other civilization, save perhaps the Carthaginians and Aztecs, practiced the art of infanticide the way Rome did. Roman fathers regarded daughters as little more than a nuisance and routinely had their infant daughters strangled, drowned, or left out on a hillside to be eaten by wild animals. This practice in the first century reached such ubiquity that, according to extant census records, only one in 600 Roman families had more than one daughter. The ratio of men to women in the empire was something like 65% men and 35% women. A massive distortion of natural ratios without, with, uh, which without this kind of interference are always around 50%. Romans didn't permit children with physical defects to live, unless you were a part of the royal family, perhaps, like Claudius. The only way Rome could be strong was to rid itself of the weak. Most of the Roman populace consisted of slaves, and the vast majority of the slave children were pressed into prostitution. Little girls for the brothels, servicing the men of the warrior and patrician classes. Little boys who would serve as malakoi, or passive sexual partners for the most or more respectable Roman senators and members of Caesar's household. The strongest slaves were forced to become gladiators, who had a life expectancy of 21. Sure, this might all seem a bit unpleasant, but Rome was a religion for winners, remember. Rome's Caesars, supposedly descended from the Trojan Aeneas, were the picture of wisdom and a sound mind, which is probably why Julius Caesar was a megalomaniac. Tiberius' greatest joy was soaking in his spa with little boys. Caligula was a paranoid schizophrenic who literally married his horse and took pleasure in kissing his wife's neck and whispering, so beautiful a neck must be cut whenever I please. He invited all the senators to a banquet, and upon their arrival they saw the windows covered by black drapes. The walls were painted black, the floor black, the tables, the plates, the candles, the silverware black. The food on the plates black, and each dish was garnished by small black tombstones. It wasn't Halloween. It was Caligula's dinner party from hell. The senators believed that this was their last supper. They ate mysteriously blackened meat for the main course, but Caligula had fear for dessert. Claudius was a raging anti-Semite. Nero was Nero. He had himself declared God, castrated a boy named Sporus, and then married him and allegedly copulated with his mother. The emperor Domitian enjoyed being a part of Rome's religion for winter so much that as he stared out upon vistas of boredom, he whiled away the hours of his life stabbing flies with his stylus. And this is all according to sympathetic witnesses like Suetonius. While Christians were creeping down into dark, secret places of the empire, carrying the light and future of the world, Rome was busy leaving no perversion untried, no blasphemy unspoken, no creeping thing unworshipped, no cruelty unpracticed.
a cult dedicated to the worship of the emperors or the, or the Divii Giulii, the dis, divine descendants of Julius Caesar, arose sometime in the middle of the first century. Priests, especially in the eastern half of the empire, formed a priesthood to worship the emperors and coerce the population into worshiping them as well. They built temples and megaliths dedicated to divine Caesar and enforced mandatory sacrifices and pledges in their names. But in due course, the cult began to wane somewhat. The succession of miserable emperors culminating in Nero and the year of the four emperors, Otho, Galba, Vitellius, Vespasian, drained the populace of enthusiasm. To meet this challenge, the imperial cult began to devise new schemes for regaining credibility, generating revenue and awe. To drum up support, they hired a few televangelists, sort of. They secured the services of an Egyptian Huron of Alexander, Alexandria rather, an engineer who'd recently invented a series of mechanical marvels. First, he designed a machine he called an pile, a steam engine prototype. Second, the world's first fending machine. Third, a fountain that operated autonomously using hydrostatic energy. Fourth, a suite of machines designed specifically for theater, mechanical marionettes that could perform on command, fly through the air, dance, mime, a thunder generator, pyrotechnics, all of these automated and governed by a hidden programmable timing device. The imperial priests then exploited these devices. They had them installed in the imperial temples underneath the floors, the gadgetry hidden from view, pipes, pulleys, counterweights, pressurized tubes, sealed steam chambers below the floors behind the walls. A crowd of worshipers shows up. The priests go through their sacerdotal duties, lifting prayers, reciting the liturgy, praying that the divine Caesars would bless the people. Now the priests urge the people to praise the emperor more loudly. Their cries become a chant, and once they've satisfied the priests with their show of devotion, a signal is given, and on cue the engines go to work. The statues of the imperial family begin to levitate. A fire appears out of nowhere and consumes the sacrifice on the altar, or at least this is what it appears to be, what appears to be happening from the perspective of the laity. The fountain spews water in a graceful arc spontaneously. Dancing figures suddenly appear. The sound of thunder cascades from underneath the imperial throne and statues of the old Greco-Roman gods bow their heads in deference to the emperors. The audience stands amazed at these marvels. Women covering their mouths, men falling on their knees, sobbing. An elderly man lifts his eyes to heaven, blinks, and thanks Saturn that he's lived to see the day of miracles, the apotheosis of the emperor, the pagan Nunc Dimittis. The reverie is interrupted, though, when a great voice emanates from the emperor's statue. It's the emperor himself, the crowd thinks. But in fact, the voice is coming from beneath the floor where a priest sits speaking into a hollow tube that snakes up through the statue and into its mouth. 
The voice commands the people to worship the Caesar alone and promises blessings upon the people's families. Rain from heaven, crops from the earth, fertility in the home, good omens in the sky, protection from the long-maned psychedelic Parthians on the empire's eastern border. The shell-shocked crowd, awed into submission, seeing all of this great glory, stands hushed but genuflecting, and they say to themselves, in the words of John, who is like the beast and who can wage war against it? The priest dismiss. The crowd disperses. One young mother takes her child to the statue of Artemis the hunter. The mother puts a coin in the child's hand. This is another one of Heron's devices, the gumball machine. The mother puts a coin in the child's hand, and on one side of the coin is a woman, Dea Romana, riding a great wolf, standing in the Tiber, surrounded by seven hills, on the obverse side is the impress of Caesar's head with rays of sun streaming from his head to signify his godness. To use the coin, whether it is to buy or sell in the marketplace, is implicit assent to the coin's declaration that Caesar is Lord, and to him every knee shall bow. The young woman prods her frightened child standing in the shadow of the glaring huntress. He holds the drachma and reluctantly puts it into the statue's hand. The coin rolls into a slit in the palm and disappears into a slot in the elbow. And for the child's receipt, a teardrop slips out the idol's eyes, rolls down her cheek. Here again, the voice of the New Testament prophet. Long before the farce was uncovered for the public, John saw behind these machinations and declared, the dragon has given power to the beast to perform wonders, to call down fire, to speak blasphemies. In other words, as John saw it, the imperial cultic priesthood was giving power to the images of the emperors and making them out to be gods or vice versa. Hear the words of John, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in the full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to breathe to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. To the rest of the world, Rome seems omnicompetent, omnipotent. The empire works hard at striking a delicate balance between instilling fear in its subjects and yet appealing to their sense of civic pride. And to pull this off, propaganda is everywhere. Old myths are reworked to fit the latest narrative. For instance, the myth of Apollo and the origins of Delphi is retold to flatter the emperor. According to the myth's iteration in John's day, when Apollo was born, a giant python tried to, to attack Apollo's mother, Leto. But she escapes, and Leto's child later slays the giant serpent. The imperial priests invent this version of Apollo's birth because they're trying to equate the god Apollo with the emperor. John, of course, counters this narrative in Apocalypse 12 and turns the myth upside down. Here, it's Rome that's operating under the aegis of a serpent. But stories aren't enough. 
the population is largely illiterate. So Rome pours its energies into communicating through architecture, megalithic engineering. The city is symbolized, as mentioned earlier, by the goddess Dea Romana, a woman riding a beast. Her divine husband is the reigning Caesar, who is symbolized as standing astride the earth and sea, one foot on land, the other in the sea. In every temple, a statue of Nike stands, a goddess holding a palm branch in one hand. Please note this carefully. My slide presentation isn't quite working as planned, so it's all going to have to come down to the words. In every temple, a statue of Nike stands, a goddess holding a palm branch in one hand, and in the other, a Stephanon Tis Zois, or victor's crown, which she'll bestow upon the Ho Nikon, literally the one who overcomes. Her constant presence throughout the empire is a reminder that Rome is number one, the victor. To be part of Rome, therefore, is to share in this crown. John's apocalypse takes Rome's own propaganda, its delusion of grandeur, and turns it on its head. He pulls the veil aside in heaven and shows that Rome's pretension to messianic power are merely a com comical parody of the true power that resides in the heavens. Dea Romana is merely Rome's crass attempt to achieve the majesty of the Holy Bride of Christ. Rome is the great victor, or the Ho Nikon, the overcomer, is a tragic joke. In fact, it is a parody of the true Ho Nikon, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who has overcome the world, and behold, he is alive forevermore. Moreover, instead of Rome being number one and holding the palm branch in one hand and wearing a crown upon its head, it will be the saints who hold the palm branch in one hand and wear the victor's crown in the end. The Caesars are nothing more than pretend messiahs with a fake gospel. The imperial cult tries to look like a lamb, Revelation 13 and 11, but they speak like the dragon. The mark that the beast will compel the people to take is a direct challenge to the Shema, the preeminent confession of the saints. Where Deuteronomy 6 commands the saints to put the Shema on the forehead and the right hand, signifying Yahweh's absolute priority. So does the Roman pretender, suffering from a chronic God complex, try to usurp this corporeal territory and call it his own. Where Jesus is Lord, the imperial cult would have the Christian on pain of death say Caesar is Lord. Satan prepares a messianic imitation each and every generation, awaiting the final showdown when the Lord Jesus suddenly descends with a shout. As it was then, so it is now in every age. The enemy of our soul offers an alternative Messiah, an alternative Shema, an alternative priestcraft, an alternative eternal city, an alternative peace, an alternative salvation. In a word, our enemy is always in the business of crafting a religion of Nike, a religion that appeals to our pride, a religion in which only winners need apply. But we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We have the holy word of God and the testimony of the saints. The early Christians simply outlasted the empire as the water of a river quietly outlasts the jagged boulder that lies in its path, imperceptibly wearing it away, shaping it, smoothing it by its steady persistence over a period of centuries. 
When we think back on how the faith overcame the empire, we sometimes imagine that it grew through massive revivals. This probably has a lot to do with Luke's acts. The Christian physician does record a few mass conversions, but the record of these events merely describes the church's very earliest days and not the second half of the first century necessarily. Moreover, the kind of mass conversions that Luke describes seem to have occurred primarily, if not exclusively, in Judea. In point of fact, the church of the second and third centuries grew through more conventional methods, and its growth was so stunning during these centuries that by the time Rome understood what had happened, it was too late. The only way Rome of the fourth century could survive the church's silent invasion was by joining it. Allow me to explain how this happened. If you'll recall from earlier, I mentioned that Greco-Roman practice gave priority to male children. Females were re routinely aborted in utero or exposed or simply smothered or poisoned after birth, birth, thrown into a city dump. I'm not suggesting that this practice was confined to the hardened, morally defective few in Rome. The only modern analogy I can use to compare the casual manner in which female infants were mur murdered is probably the modern attitude towards eating meat. There are always a few abstainers, vegans, vegetarians, but most contemporary folks think nothing of eating a chicken salad or steak. Such, I suppose, was the ancient attitude towards infanticide. There were a few quote-unquote eccentrics out there who thought the practice was immoral, but most folks regarded disposing an infant daughter as a means of helping the family by having one less mouth to feed, one less dowry to provide for. To illustrate what I mean, I'm going to read a letter, or at least a salient passage from the letter, written by what I take to be your average family man of the second, empire, second century empire, a certain Hilarion, writing to his expected wife, Alice. Know that I am still in Alexandria, he says, and do not worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. Don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. I quoted the last two sentences, though they go beyond the point I'm making, simply because they indicate that this was, as far as men of antiquity go, clearly a man of feeling, tenderness, a man with a keen romantic sense. He was not some hermit Gosnell or Planned Parenthood executive or moral degenerate. Alas, I repeat myself. The child is given the same regard as a cut of beef that's been sitting in the house too long and needs to be thrown out lest the maggots multiply. Early Christians were those eccentrics I alluded to. Following the teachings of Paul, they insisted that men and women had equal standing before Christ. Children were not to be aborted. They were a gift from God, whether they were male or female, healthy or deformed. The Didache, a second century Syrian Christian document, explicitly forbids the destruction of the unborn, hu phonesis, technon enthora, uda yenethen apoctenes, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. Another second century Christian document, the epistle of Barnabas warns, you shall not slay the child by procuring abortion, nor again shall you destroy it after it is born. You shall not withdraw your hand from your son or from your daughter, but from their infancy you shall teach them the fear of the Lord. Now imagine the long-term impact of these policies. Rome is killing its daughters, 
Christianity is valuing them. There are roughly two or three boys for every girl. This ratio, or that is in the empire, this ratio is unsustainable and lethal to civilization, but the situation is even worse than I've just described. One simply can't think in terms of the ratio of boys to girls. The ratio needs to account for not just men to women, but rather the ratio of men to available women. Prostitution and concubinage were rampant in the empire. Some men hoarded women. The ratio of men to marriageable women might have been something like four to one. Wow. To say that Greco-Roman men were having great difficulty finding a wife is an understatement. But there is no such problem in the early church. In fact, the ratio of Christian men to women seems to have tilted slightly in favor of women. Where are the Roman men beginning to look for marriageable women in the second and third centuries? They can't find them in their communities. They find them in the church. But the church has a strict policy. Christians cannot marry outside the faith. So unmarried pagan men often find themselves motivated, inclined to listen more patiently to the good news. Pregnant pause. Be a good place to take a drink of water. Thus, over a period of two centuries, Christianity strengthened by its teachings, paganism enfeebled by its practices, went entirely separate ways. Not just, of course, theologically, but economically and socially. Christianities had large, healthy families. Pagans had small families, further weakened by routine promiscuity and sexual rivalries. Christian families retained their children and created a center of gravity strong enough to hold multiple generations in its orbit. While the offspring of pagan unions were increasingly detached, the product of non-familial conjugation. In fine, Christian children usually lived with an affectionate and moral father, grandfather, sometimes great-grandfather, while often the pagan child born of a prostitute or concubine would be lucky if he even knew who his father was. And parenthetically, the greatest revivals can be found in our own pews. Among our children, when Israel was looking for a great, strong hero to lead them out of slavery, God sent them a child who had to be floated in a basket on the Nile. When Israel needed deliverance from their enemies, God sent them the baby Samson. When Israel needed deliverance from the Philistines, God sent the child David. When the world needed salvation, was looking for a strong and mighty Messiah, a babe was born in Bethlehem. When God is about to do something big, he usually starts with the children. And today, while we might look for the great day when our altars will suddenly be full of adult sinners waiting to be baptized. A potential revival is already sitting on our pews in the form of our children. The revival that outlasted the Roman Empire was not a sudden revival, but was instead a steady and patient revival, a long work of patience, the kind of revival that might take 30 or 60 or 100 years to realize, but they did not despair. The early church had other traits that contributed to its astonishing success. The church was not afraid of death. 
As an illustration, consider the difference between the names. The Christian and the pagan gave their graves. The pagan Romans referred to their graveyard as a necropolis, or city of the dead. For them, the grave is a place of permanent separation, typical artwork on Roman sarcophagi depict people being painfully and permanently separated by the gods of death. When one died, one could expect to go to a cold, lonely Hades where one would live out an eternity in a disembodied state. The Christian, though, believed that this afterlife was often the, this life in this world was often the place of alienation and suffering, but the next would be a life of intimacy with God and family and the saints. Thus, the Christian never referred to their grave as a city of the dead. They called their graveyard coimeterion, or cemetery, that is, a sleeping place, a coinage that pays homage to Paul's impressive, we shall not all sleep. For Christians, death meant rest, not separation, and with this understanding, they awed the world. One example. A plague descended upon the city of Alexandria in the third century, wiping out half the population, sending most of the rest to their sickbeds. As the casualties mounted, the world's leading expert on medicine, Galen, ran for his life and abandoned the people he should have had the fortitude to heal. The Christians in that city were a small and persecuted and isolated minority, but when the plague came, they came out of hiding and were the only people in the city willing to tend to the sick. They showed no fear. Unlike the pagans, they lived with death on a daily basis. During this crisis, they built the world's first hospital system, a poor, crude practice, yes. Nevertheless, they nursed thousands of pagans back to health, and when the plague was gone and the dead were buried and living were whole again, they marveled at their Christian benefactors, the people they had once loathed. Like a weed living in a dark prison, turning towards a stray beam of light, trying to solve the enigma of its existence, pagan Alexandria turned towards Christianity. Here was light something different. The Christians had single-handedly saved the city, and Alexandria never forgot them. It became Christian long before Rome did, and still to this day, the memory of this event lingers. While wave after wave of Muslim persecution has swept the region, Egyptian Christians remain a valued minority. The secularist assumes that Christianity has been rendered obsolete, superseded today by science, but who does the modern scoffer think we are? A rotary club formed last week, last year, or decade, or century, or millennium? We have stared down bigger, badder, more determined foes before. If we weren't extinguished when there was just a handful of us against the entire Roman Empire, what hope can our enemy possibly have as the name of Christ is declared in every nation? But even if every one of us were buried deep in the earth, let our enemy see to it that he sets a guard upon the tombs and seals them shut. Cover the valley of our dry bones in miles of dirt, but still beware for all it will take for those bones to become an army is for our God to summon one prophet to speak. There is no place in the universe the church is more lethal than the grave. 
Secularism was born in cozy Parisian cafes, dreamed up by jaded, malcontent men, living on the spoils of the welfare of a Christian milieu. But we Christians were conceived not on a bed of leisure, not in some sunny veil. We were conceived on a cross. We were delivered in a tomb. We were born in the dark. We learned to speak on Pentecost while the world mocked us. We took our first steps under the reign of your stones. We were raised in the catacombs. We were educated in the lion's mouth. We became men at the stake. Do you imagine you can invent a few toys, make a few gadgets, propose a few new philosophies, take over a few dozen college campuses, win a few presidential elections, corrupt a few generations, and will suddenly go away? We've been called irrelevant since Calvary. Do not celebrate the death of the faith too soon. Don't proclaim the triumph of the religion of, of winners just yet. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. Satan, where are your Pauls, your Peters, your Johns, your Antipasses, your Calixtuses? Produce them if you can, and what shall I say more? Time will not allow me to tell of Polycarp and Phoebe and Praxius. Men and women, the world called losers, but, but men and women of whom the world was not worthy. There have been Christians for whom it would have been easier to rope the sun and turn it in reverse course than to turn them from the course of truth and honor. They spoke the truth as unhesitatingly with the axe suspended above their neck as when they sat with their adoring listeners lapping up every word in a, word in a safe house. And we are their sons and daughters. Apostolics made of the same stuff and filled with the same spirit and baptized in the same name Already, secularism and science have all but died and are being propped up by one another's rigor mortis. What does applied secularism have to show for itself? How about the gender studies cul-de-sac? Gender dysphoria? Secular doctrines with no limiting principles and cities peopled with perverts. Science created the atomic weapon and has made life in the modern world so unbearable for many that the official emotion of the 21st century is anxiety with loneliness as a close second. Secularism has failed so utterly that only an intellectual could believe in it. Our weeping will endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning, friends. For those of us not bound by the tyranny of the present and beholden to the deceitfulness of momentary appearances, a secular victor, victory can only be ephemeral and will amount to little more than a pop gun fired at an army that won the war 20 centuries ago. From the perspective of eternity, the kingdom of God thunders in the skies and has come to the earth, flung open its gates. But yet the secular critics sit like two toads on the bank of a muddy pond croaking, we've won, we've won. While the world, many mighty, not many noble. Our cornerstone is the stone the builders rejected, but when the secular dreams and idols inevitably become mere museum pieces set next to Aphrodite, Horus, and Zeus, the church will thunder through the ages. I conclude. The early 20th century atheist George Bernard Shaw once observed that, and I paraphrase, the successful man adapts himself to the world while the unsuccessful man persists 
in trying to make the world conform to himself. But with all due respect, what hope is there if successful people are always adapting themselves to a broken world? It appears that if the world has any hope of changing, it's going to be up to its unsuccessful people. Or to paraphrase Ted Turner, it's losers. For the loser demands that the world adapt to him. And this is precisely what the Christians have always done. They never looked out on the world and decided to conform to it. They looked at a cross and insisted that it was a throne. They looked at a crown of thorns and insisted it was a crown of glory. They persist in believing that a collection of 12 uneducated rejects were messengers of God. They looked out on the world and believed it was somehow less real than the Bible they held in their hands. They never took the world at face value. They shook their fists at the desert and demanded it rain. Did they look at the houses of the prostitutes, the broken, the addicts, and shrug their shoulders and say, it is what it is? No. They insisted that these could be houses of the redeemed. They looked out on whole continents in the grip of Satan and declared them already one for Christ. In the spring of 2011, as an American seminary student, I found myself standing on Areopagus, the same rock formation near the Acropolis where 20 centuries earlier, the apostle delivered a stern warning to Athens' philosophical guild. It was a cool Sunday morning just before dawn, and I had been asked to give a devotional to my fellow seminarians at daylight. Dawn came, and I nervously unfolded my notes and practice under my breath a few Greek phrases with which I struggled. Desa de monastrus, desa dona mestrus, I muttered repeatedly in my best Greeklish, trying to get this seven-syllable word. The term was important to the devotion. It means very religious, the word Paul used to describe the Athenians. The professor asked for the group's attention, called me to begin. I looked around, felt anxiety, especially as the professor's voice had attracted the unwanted attention of several tourists outside the group. I read my text in Greek, and when I came to that seven-syllable word, the professor cut in and, pointing out the difference, the correct position of his tongue makes in the meaning, corrected me on the pronunciation of the first two syllables. They said they, they said they, not they said they. He pronounced it, the former, with such refinement, the latter he pronounced like a caveman. I felt like a, a barbarian, but sensing that his pedantic interruption of a devotional might have been a greater breach of etiquette than my pronunciation, the scholar flashed a self-conscious smile, motioned toward me, signaling that he was done interrupting. The group, hostages, shivering in the cold morning, waiting for this exercise to end, turned their eyes back to me, but unable to help himself and finding opportunity in my hesitation to pronounce the word again, the professor decided, against his better judgment, hopefully, to interrupt the devotion again and add another factoid. You're using Erasmian Greek, a sixth century Dutch scholar's best guess at Koine Greek. But you've got to get out of that habit. D's are usually supposed to be pronounced as the. I made it through the devotional. I did make it through, but had the hardest time making a devotional. The group dissipated. I was left alone for a few minutes to explore the ancient hill. The sun was now several degrees up on the horizon when church bells all across the city, from borough to borough, from waterfront to Acropolis, began to ring. Athens came to life. The sound was deafening to my ears. 
hauntingly beautiful. A thousand churches literally announced that it was Sunday, the day that Christos rose from the grave. Twenty centuries earlier, there were no churches, much less bells to ring in a Sunday morn. The city acknowledged then its gods with stunning artistry, the Parthenon atop the Acropolis erected in honor of Athens' patroness. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Everywhere one looked, there were monuments so vast and luxurious that Athens had no need to persuade its citizens to worship. If a stranger asked them if Athena, Athena were real, they could merely point to the Parthenon and say, could something that doesn't exist inspire that? It was into this atmosphere that Paul, a solitary Jew, having not a single monument except a wooden cross to point to as evidence of the truth he spoke, bearing only the words and testimony of his mouth, stood atop this same hill and lectured the very religious Athenians. He must have made it quite a spectacle to behold that day. Indeed, the philosophers called him Spermologus, or babbler, an insult both then and now. Something about this hill attracts the philosophical in us, makes us, I suppose, feel just a little superior, whether it be the modern scholar correcting his student's pronunciation in the middle of a devotional, or the ancient Stoic sneering smugly at a Jew who on that day seemed as far away from relevance as one could be. The nearby Parthenon cast a menacing shadow over Paul. His sermon concluded with the sound, not of solemnity, but the jeer of laughter. Who could have guessed it two centuries hence? this insignificant Jew and his lore would dominate this city. Who then could have guessed that the Parthenon would soon be nothing more than a museum? I had merely given a devotional to a sympathetic audience and found myself nervous. It's hard to imagine how Paul would have felt. He stood alone that day, very alone, the only Christian in the city. The God he worshipped was for the Athenians, the unknown God. I have also visited the Mamertine prison in Rome, the place where Paul is believed to have lived his last hours. If this was indeed the place, he was lowered through a hole, the same hole through which the guards could also use to slide buckets through for food and waste onto a stone dungeon floor 11 feet below. The world he once roamed free was now reduced to a few feet of cold earth and his circle of friends once robust, dwindled by the day as death hung overhead. Paul died after the fashion of his master, alone. But how satisfying it would have been for Paul, the man who lived between the lightning of the resurrection and the thunder of his Lord's return, to hear these church bells ringing and to know that Athens Christians, nominal or otherwise, now outnumber the worshipers of Athena, roughly three million to zero. Before descending the stairs back to terra firma, I took one last look around at Mars Hill. When Paul was here, the Sto Stoics and Epicureans were the dominant culture makers, the purveyors of wisdom. They almost seemed to be the only two games in town. These philosophers assumed that the future would ultimately do be dominated by one or the other. But as I took to the stairs, listening to the bells, the disputer of this world, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And indeed, where are they today? These philosophies and religion for winners are gone, long gone. And it's only a matter of time before the heavenly song the ancient Christian prophet John heard is fulfilled. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord.
and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever.